pivotal in the book of Daniel, but it's pivotal for the Bible. Uh, it's, it's pivotal for the Old Testament and uh, for the New Testament as well in terms of, of prophecy. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books of the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And so, Father, tonight as we approach your most holy word as we approach your throne room tonight, as we, we seek your guidance, as we seek your wisdom, especially in this chapter that can be very confusing if we don't understand the context. It can be very uh, confusing if we wanted to say certain things that, uh, unfortunately, many people try to make it say, whether it's commentaries or just uh, denominations or pastors, whatever it may be. I ask that you would uh, speak to us clearly tonight that we would understand it in not only in the context uh, that it is written, but how it applies to us even as well. The spiritual warfare and heavenly places that takes place uh, during these chapters is just truly overwhelming. And, and unless we to ourselves, just like Daniel is grounded in you, we gird up that armor of faith even tonight you would help us to focus upon you and you alone. Lord, it's so easy to get up, caught up in, in the hype and, and all the, the peripheral things, but help us to keep you forefront in our minds tonight. Lord, I thank you so much for these, my friends, my family that are gathered here tonight, those that are watching online or will watch in the future, I ask you bless them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Daniel, of course, was divided into uh, two halves. The first half is very, very personal. It is about him. It is about not only when he is a, a young uh, teenager starting out in uh, the Babylonian Empire, uh, but also as he transpired in his career in uh, the Babylonian uh, Empire as he worked his way not only through uh, the Babylonian Empire, serving under multiple different kings, but then also the next empire that came into play, uh, the Medes and the Persians, and were introduced uh, to the third of the kings that Daniel actually served under, the first of the kings from uh, the line of the Medes and the Persians. And we're going to be introduced actually to two of these different kings, first in chapter 9, and then also in chapter 10, because at this time, there's actually two kings that are serving side by side, just like there are a, a, an allyship of two different empires serving side by side during this time. And those are called the Mede and the Persians. And if you remember from your maybe junior high history class or world history class or whatever it was, uh, you, you recognize one of those kingdoms. In fact, one of those kingdoms is actually going to become the world power later on in the history of the world, the Persian Empire. 
the Medes uh, were alongside uh, the Persian Empire. They're mentioned more in the Bible, per se, than uh, in world history. Uh, but they had a prominent role in making sure of the downfall of the Babylonians and the rise of the Medes and uh, the Persians. So the first of the two kings, and we were introduced to him actually back in Daniel chapter 6, and now again in Daniel chapter 9, Darius. Remember, it was Darius that made the law that couldn't be broken even by himself, right? Why? Because the Medes and the Persians had a system of laws. They, they were known for their uh, rigid nature to their laws. Once a law was put in place, it couldn't be overturned, even by the person that wrote it until the time of its uh, uh, ending. And in the case in chapter 6, it was a 30-day notice. No one can worship anyone except for Darius. And what were the consequences? By lions then, right? That famous story going back to Daniel chapter 6. And so during this time that Darius is in charge in the first year, there's this vision that comes to Daniel. Not only was he in the lion's den, but either before this time period or after this time period, he gets this vision from uh, the Lord. What is this vision? He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And he finds out from the book of Jeremiah that they're only supposed to be in the land of Babylon slash Midian Persia for 70 years. And it's coming close to the end. In fact, when we were in the book of Jeremiah, we actually look forward to this time period. Jeremiah looking back on, or excuse me, Daniel looking back on Jeremiah's writings reading the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, and he reads this in Jeremiah chapter 29, and this is very familiar for all of us. It says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to your place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace, not of evil. They give you a future and a hope. Do you understand how powerful that is when you actually read it in context? Because who's reading it right now? Daniel. Wow, God's been thinking of us this entire time. These whole 70 years that we've been in captivity, God has been planning this event that we're going to be returning to the promised land. And his thoughts for us are good. But it continues on, and it gets even better in verse 12. Uh, then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. Who's in control the whole time? 
even in the midst of their captivity. Now, by the way, Daniel isn't going to go back to the land. Daniel isn't going back. Who is going to go back? Ezra, Nehemiah, and all those people, those thousands of people are going to return to uh, the promised land. But where is Daniel going to serve for the rest of his life? He's going to serve in the Medes and the Persians. He's going to be a witness, a testimony to uh, these uh, kingdoms about the glory and power of God. In fact, in verse 3, going back to Daniel chapter 9, it says, Then I set my faith toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplication, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, Daniel, as he's reading the book of Jeremiah, understanding that it's going to be 70 years that they're going to be returning. And so now he himself not only repents for the nation of Israel, but fulfills the second part of Jeremiah chapter 29, where, where if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. In fact, that's exactly what he does in verse 4. And I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgment. Who, who does Daniel include in his prayer? Himself. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is, this is the guy who stood up for the Lord multiple times. This is the guy who is compared to being a righteous man. Even if Daniel were there, I wouldn't save those people as a righteous man to be compared to. The, the standard of what it means to be a man of God, a person to whom visions and dreams were revealed to. And he's including himself in the confession, along with the Israelites as well. You see here that not only does he include himself, but he understands his own frailties too. Can anyone who is a righteous person be lifted up to that position where they too can fall? Where, and you see it unfortunately many times where people are put upon pedestals. And they're, they're human beings. They're tempted too. And rather than praying for them, many, many times we you know, abuse them and talk badly about them and gossip about them. But Daniel, he's including himself in this prayer of confession for the people of Israel. But in verse 6, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, to all the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you. But to us, shame of face, as it is this day. 
the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and, and those far off and all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of faith. Now in, in verse 6 and then also, excuse me, in verse 7, and then also in verse 8, we have this phrase, this phrase, shame of faith. It is only found twice in the Bible, only in these two verses. Do you understand what Daniel is saying about what sin represents before God? It's a shame on our face before you. It, it, it's a shame on us before a holy and righteous God. What we have done against a righteous, awesome God is shameful. And we have rightfully so, been put into bondage for 70 years. But you and your great mercy are going to bring us back. I don't know what it is like for you, whether looking back on your life, maybe certain shameful things that you have done. But what is Daniel saying about this? Is God merciful even to those that have shame on their faith. Where, where instead of, you know, putting them down, what is God going to do? He's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back to the promised land. Where, by the way, they can start all over again. Where, where God's going to give them that place of sanctuary, that place where they can rebuild the temple and come back into the very presence of God again. In fact, they're going to hunger for it. This is one of the first things they're going to want to build is a temple to worship God again. Because for 70 years, have they had a temple? No. Have they had a place where they can worship God? No. And so now God's going to bring them back. In fact, that's what it says there in verse 8. Uh, uh, o Lord, to us belongs shame of faith, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. But, verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Is there a contrast there? What belongs to us? Shame of faith. What belongs to the Lord? Mercy and forgiveness. Wow. And by the way, you can put yourself in this position too, by the way. Thank God for not only the New Testament, we see mercy and grace and forgiveness prominently in the New Testament, but, but even in the Old Testament, we see it over and over and over and over again. Especially in this beautiful chapter, these people that have rebelled against God and rightfully so being disciplined, being taken into captivity for 70 years, and God is there mercifully the whole entire time with plans that are good for them to bring them back. But it doesn't just end there in verse 9. It says, Though we have rebelled against him, we have not re obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets, 
Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so that as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. Remember, going again back to the book of Jeremiah, that comparison that Jeremiah said about Jerusalem itself, comparing them to Sodom and Gomorrah, comparing them to the worst of the nations, even outsinning uh, the other nations in their rebellion against God. And God in his righteousness, of course, he judges them, he disciplines them, he makes them go into captivity. But the amazing thing is, is he's still there even in the hardest times of Israel's history. And what is God going to do with Israel? He's going to bring them back. He's going to bring them back. Verse 13, chapter 9 of Daniel, it continues on. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayers before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind, brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all his works, which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. What does true repentance, what does true confession look like? Right here. He admits, including himself in the nation of Israel. He doesn't skirt uh, the issue. He, he doesn't whitewash the issue. He doesn't say, oops, my bad, or something like that, or, or hit about it, or joke about it. What does he do? He humbles himself before God and confesses the sins of his people. Th this is what true confession looks like. In fact, in the New Testament, this is what it means when we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? What does it mean to confess? And just as Daniel is including himself here, we too, when we want our, our nation to be cleansed, our nation to change, where does it start? with the church, with us, with Christians, right? Uh, the understanding is that it starts with us as well. In fact, Israel, they've been unfaithful, but God has still been faithful. Israel has broken the covenant, but God has still kept the covenant. Is God still faithful in their captivity? In fact, that amazing verse in 2 Timothy not only applies to us today, but also uh, during the time of its writing and also in the Old Testament as well. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 13, 
if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Do you know why? Do you know why? It says it in the last part of that verse. He can't deny himself. It's who he is. If God doesn't forgive, he's not God. It's part of his attributes. Just like God has to be holy. If God isn't holy, he's not God. The same thing with his faithfulness. God is faithful because he is God. He cannot deny himself by being unfaithful. It, it is who he is in his very being. It defines who he is as God. He cannot even deny himself when even we act faithless. God remains faithful. And it's true during the time of Daniel, it's true today. Thank God, by the way, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people are reproached to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. What is the thing that Daniel prays for? Not, not just to return to the land, but for the sanctuary of God, for the temple itself. And remember, it had been destroyed during the time of Jeremiah, Jeremiah being an eyewitness account of this. But what does he say? This temple, this sanctuary is in desolation right now. And Lord, I pray that you would rebuild it. In fact, when you read the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this is exactly uh, the goal that Ezra and Nehemiah have is to rebuild uh, the temple. Verse 18, oh my God, incline your ear and your ear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deed, but because of your great mercy. When, when you come before God, and unfortunately many times we we hear people say this, oh, or God, you know, uh, you know, answer my prayers because I am a, you know, and we list our good deed. You know, we, we list the things that we think God wants from us. I'll, I'll promise to do this for you. No, no. It's all based upon who God is, not who we are. In fact, that's what Daniel cries out because of your great mercy. It's not, not because of what I've done. And, and Daniel could have listed a plethora of things. He could have listed so many, you know, because I was so righteous. I pray three times a day. I stand up for what is right. I, I've, I've served you faithfully for decades and decades under multiple kings. I've done all these things for you. No. What does he do? Just like every single one of us should do. We fall upon the mercies of God. 
the great mercies of God, thank God, but the mercies of God nevertheless. We fall upon his mercies, his righteousness. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people called by your name. There's three things in verse 19 that just highlight or underline or, or memorize. And they all start with the same phrase, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, right? It's a simple phrase. He's crying out to Yahweh. He's crying out uh, to the God of the universe. But what is, what is he saying in each of those things? Hear, forgive, listen, and now. Is, is that a simple prayer that we too can pray as well? In fact, when you don't have anything else to say, can we say that same thing? Hear me, forgive me, listen and act. But it's always dependent upon his own sake. You see it there in the next phrase. Do not delay for your own sake. Not, not for me, God, but for your sake for your reputation, for who you are. And then in verse 20, this is where the understanding comes in. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and rep rep presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel who I'm seeing in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Now, you've heard Gabriel before. You probably hear Gabriel every single year at a different time of the year. Normally, we hear about him at Christmas time because who was Gabriel? Yeah. He, he was the guy, the angel that got to go to Mary and Joseph, right? He was the one that told Mary that she was going to be with child and the one to tell Joseph to marry Mary because she was with child, right? But there's an interesting thing that's described there in the book of Luke. And, and we also get to see a little bit more about who he is and his position in heaven in Daniel. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, normally we don't bring this out at Christmas time. Normally we just talk about, you know, Mary and Joseph and, and Gabriel going to see them and tell them. But there's an interesting fact about Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. What is the position of Gabriel in the presence of God right there before God? As one of those messengers, 
those angels who would be sent out, and not just during the time uh, of Mary and Joseph, but also during the time of Daniel. And, and by the way, in these next two chapters, chapter 9 and chapter 10, we're going to see more about spiritual warfare happening in those heavenly places that, that Daniel doesn't see until the angels tell him about it. In fact, that's what it says there, going back to chapter 9 of Daniel, verse 22. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out. When did God hear Daniel? From the very first word out of his mouth. From the very first utterance of his voice, Daniel was heard by God. But what happened in between? And unfortunately, many times we too, we, we ask, well, does God hear me? Or God, has God answered me yet? We get a little bit of an insight into this. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went forth. God told me, told me to come to you. And I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Does God want us to understand? Does God want to give us wisdom? Yes, he does. In fact, again, in the New Testament, in the book of James, if we, we ask for wisdom, what will God do? It's a guarantee, by the way. He'll grant it to us. He'll give it to us. Unfortunately, many times we don't ask. Daniel is asking. And by the way, in this instance, we don't know the exact amount of time. In chapter 10, we're going to find out that it's 21 days. There's this delay or this spiritual warfare that takes place where where Satan is trying to de delay uh, the answer. He doesn't want Daniel to find out. But these prophecies that he's going to receive apply to not only uh, the 70 years that they're in Babylon that God is going to fulfill, but also now to the future as well. Back in verse 24, it says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow. You see, there's this summation in verse 24 of what's going to happen for the rest of this chapter. And normally we do not focus on chapter 24. Normally we skip ahead to chapter verse 25 and verse 26. Normally we, we look at the numbers and we calculate them and, and I'll, I'll go over that in just a little bit. Normally we, we talk about the book of Revelation. We talk about you know, all, all these events that are going to be taking place in the, during the tribulation time period, and we skip over verse 24. Verse 24 tells us what the goal of God is. 
What is God going to do during this time? Something amazing. He's going to do multiple things. He's going to finish the transgression. He's going to make an end of sins. He's going to make reconciliation for iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. Isn't that important? Isn't that amazing? In fact, more important than the rest of the chapter, by the way, where we get lost in all these calculations. But what is God going to accomplish? He's going to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. What's going to happen? The Messiah is coming, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ is going to come onto the scene. Within the next 490 years, these 70 weeks, God is going to send his son. Wow. The most important event in the history of the world, the event that divides the end or the beginning from the end, the, the event that divides B.C. from A.D., where, where Jesus Christ comes to the earth. And by the way, the exact dates are going to be given. The exact timing is going to be given by, or by Gabriel to Daniel. Do you understand why Satan doesn't want Daniel to have this? Why, why Satan, not only in, in this chapter, but also in chapter 10, is going to fight to stop Gabriel and Michael from coming to him? What, what, why Satan doesn't want this written down? You see, God is going to bring about the accomplishment of these marvelous things, this tra end of transgression, this end of sin, this making reconciliation for iniquity, this bringing of everlasting righteousness, the anointing of the most holy. The culmination of Israel, by the way. The, the reason why God chose Israel in the first place to bring about the Messiah. And Daniel has these numbers right before the, these calculations right before him this ultimate goal of God here on the earth to bring about the end of sin, the death of sin, the reconciliation of us to God. Isn't that amazingly important? Unfortunately, most of us, we, you know, in, in most commentaries and whether it's, it's teachings on this, we, we, we normally focus upon chapter or verses 25 and 26. And, and, and for good reason, I mean, there's an understanding here of the exactness of time, the accuracy of prophecy. Yes, that's so important. And it's easy to get technical, okay? And so in order not to get too technical, I printed it out for you, okay? So, and I did this on purpose. It's in the back, so you're not looking at it now, okay? Uh, you can take it home and look at it for yourself, okay? 
but basically what's going to happen here in the next two verses, it's going to describe the accuracy, the exact timing of when the Messiah is going to come and pay for sin. You see, there's this understanding that not only the 70 weeks, but also in the next verse in 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, this event that you have been looking forward to, that has had the majority of this chapter, by the way, that the event that you read about in Jeremiah that was going to take place 70 years after the captivity. They're going to return to the land. When that decree takes place, and by the way, there's an exact time when that happens, not only in the book of Ezra chapter 2, but also in the book of Daniel as well, that the, the exact time when that takes place to the exact time, as it says here, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 72 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. You see the exact date of this uh, happening. And of course, we have this not only in the book of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, uh, but it takes place in March 444 BC when that, that amazing, you know, uh, King Cyrus, as we're going to find out in the next chapter there, when Cyrus, the king of the Persians, tells Nehemiah, you can go back to the land. Wow. And of course, we have this not only in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra and Daniel, but also in history as well. Uh, collaboration, uh, being able to understand that, that this is a true event that actually took place on a given day. And, and then to be able to calculate these uh, seven weeks and these 62 weeks, and by the way, if you, you multiply uh, that out, it comes out to be about eight hundred or 483 years. And of course, this is a, a uh, lunar calendar. And then, of course, you know, trying to convert it to what's called a Gregorian calendar, where we have five extra days in our calendar every single year because we live on a, a solar calendar. It actually multiplies out to a different amount of days. But then you calculate, you know, the, the leap years, and, and then you calculate all the various, you know, uh, understanding of what the difference between 365 and 360 is. And of course, trying to understand this, I just printed it out for you, okay? So it's a lot easier. Just just get the, the, the table, uh, just get the better explanation. But is the word of God accurate? In fact, that's what it says there in verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and end of it shall be with a flood. Till the end of the war, desolations are 
determined. In fact, Jesus spoke of this same event that's going to take place there in Luke chapter 19, verse 42. Saying, if you had known, even you especially in this your day. In fact, Jesus is describing these events, going back to Jeremiah, going back to Daniel, referring to these days of hard times. This is me fulfilling a prophecy in your very midst, described by Daniel himself to the very day. The things that make for your peace but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side. And by the way, this is going to take place in 70 AD. And level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave you in one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. They were blind to prophecy. And, and by the way, this is only within 480 years. They had the book of Daniel. They had the book of Ezra. They had the book of Nehemiah. They had the book of Jeremiah. And they were oblivious to it. And Jesus is saying, I'm standing right before you the fulfillment of prophecy, and you're blind to it. It's easy to look back on them and accuse them, but is it true for today as well? Is the world blind, and yet we see it all around us, the fulfillment of prophecy, the birth pangs. Do you see it around you even today? First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15. I love this. I love this book. Love this chapter. Love these verses. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And the same is true for all prophecy what is it meant for believers? A comfort. A blessing. Why? Boom, we're going to be gone. Isn't that beautiful? In fact, that's what Daniel's going to see ultimately at the end. The understanding is this is a comfort for your people. This is why Daniel's writing this down. This is why Daniel's very meticulous when he writes down what is happening to him. Not just the first, uh, you know, six chapters where, where it's very, you know, uh, Sunday schooly or, or very story oriented, but also toward the end as well, where, where there's these prophecies that are being written that have to be written down in exact details. The exact numbers must be true in order for the fulfillment to be accurate. 
in the last verse of this chapter, it says, then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. And this is referring to uh, the tribulation time period. On Monday nights, we're going through the book of, of Revelation. We just finished chapter 11 uh, just this last Monday and it addressed this exact same part, the midpoint of the tribulation, where it goes from the tribulation time period to the great tribulation where there's an event that takes place right in the middle of this tribulation time period referred to here where Antichrist is going to break his covenant with Israel and going to bring about what is called the desolation of abomination or the abomination of desolation. Here we're going to see the abomination of desolation and then also the desolation of abomination what it says here is very, very prominent. What it says in the middle of the week, at the three and a half year point, at the three and a half year point of this seven year tribulation, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. Was well, he better? descriptions of this later on in chapter 11, uh, but the understanding here is that the covenant has been made by the Antichrist, and the Antichrist being Antichrist is the opposite of Christ. God keeps his covenant. What does Antichrist do? He breaks his covenant. He breaks his promise. In fact, that's what he does to mark the halfway point, three and a half years into the tribulation. He ends the sacrificial system and he ends the offering. The, those, those points that make the temple, uh, the temple, the Jews being the ones that wanted to have a, a new temple to be able to offer sacrifices again. And this is why we know that the tribulation isn't happening now. Because the temple's not built. The Jews aren't offering sacrifices right now. So if someone tells you that you're in the tribulation, no, you're not. Because those things have to happen. And then Antichrist is going to break that covenant. And then a greater tribulation, the, the last half of the tribulation called the the great tribulation will take place where you have uh, the trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, which literally cause havoc upon the world, literally tribulation upon tribulation, woe upon woe. But look at what he describes it as in the last two phrases there. Even till the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Does God know when it's going to happen? And has God already determined it, that it will happen? Yes, he has. And will it still bring about good? Yes, it will. Wow. Th this is the power of God. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now we meet the other king that Daniel is serving under. And remember again, the Medes and the Persians, there's actually a, a co-regent of kings reigning at this time, dividing up the authority at Darius under the Medes, and then now Cyrus under the Persians. Verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a message was delivered to Daniel. 
whose name is called Belshazzar. The message was true, but the appointed time was long, and he understood the message and had understanding of uh, the vision. There's two points that I want to bring out. The message is always true, but do we always get it right away? That's what it says. But the appointed time was long. Did Daniel have to wait? Did Daniel have to wait? Yes, he did. That should comfort us, by the way. Because do we have to wait a time? Yes. And if Daniel, being that righteous man of faith, had to wait, you know, same is true for us. We're going to see why he has to wait later on in this chapter. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks, 21 days. I ate no pleasant food, no meat, no wine came into my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all until the three whole weeks were fulfilled. And on the 24th day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold a certain man clothed in linen whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz. His body was like burl. His face was like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze in color, and the sound of his words was like the voice of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great terror fell upon them, so that they fled to hide uh, themselves. D do you get the picture? What is Daniel doing for 24 days? Fasting and praying. He's had this great vision two years earlier in chapter 9, and, and now he's waiting for another word from the Lord, this other vision that God has told him uh, to wait for. He's with his entourage, his, his servants, those that attend uh, to him. Uh, they don't see the vision. They don't see uh, this amazing angel before them, this mighty one who is standing before them. All they have is this feeling of fear that comes upon them. Verse 8, therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision. No strength remained in me, for my vigor was turned to frailty in me, and I retained no strength. Yet I heard the sound of his words, and while I heard the sound of his words, I was in a deep sleep on my face with my face to the ground. This is called prostrate. And th this is the position of literally falling on your face. Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble in my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man, greatly beloved. Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For I have now been sent to you. And while he was speaking this word to me, I stood trembling. Do you understand the addressing to Daniel? How does God see you in his life? And even though there's a delay, even though there's a, a period of time of waiting does that mean that God loves you any less? No. No. In fact, how does he describe Daniel as one who is greatly beloved? 
God greatly beloves you. There's an answer coming. There's an answer coming. But unfortunately, there's a spiritual warfare happening behind the scenes that we don't see. In fact, even Daniel doesn't see it until this angel describes it to him. Verse 12, then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day, just like he said in the previous chapter, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. That's the second time we've read this this evening. Does God hear your words from the very beginning? Yes, he does. Thank God. Your words were heard, and I've come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, but I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. Is there a real spiritual warfare happening? Yes, there is. In fact, here we're, we're given a little glimpse. There's this demonic influence even over the nation of Persia. It's described as this, this prince of Persia who's trying to prevent the message from coming to Daniel. Why? he doesn't want Daniel to get the answer. Back to the book of Ephesians, and I'm sure all of you have read this many, many times. When you read it right next to uh, the book of Daniel, it really comes alive. It really comes alive. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Look at the titles that are given here. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers in the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts, of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is what is being revealed to Daniel at this time. I had to go through this horde of demons that are trying to prevent me from coming to you. Michael came and helped me. An archangel. Wow. Is there excitement in prayer? Is there battles going on in prayer? Oh, yeah. We always rely upon the power of his might. That's where our strength comes from. But in the rest of those verses in the book of Ephesians, it tells us, us what to do as well. We, yes, we, we rely upon his might, but what are we supposed to gird ourselves with? And it's always with God, by the way. It's always with God. Therefore stand, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, 
above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. By the way, what's the first piece you're supposed to put on? It's not the sword of the Spirit. It's not the shield of faith. Not the helmet of salvation. Not the shoes. Verse 14, it tells us, Therefore stand, having gird your waist with truth. What's the very first thing you're supposed to put on? Belt. What holds everything together? What holds your pants up? Right? What's, what's the very first thing uh, that Paul tells us to put on in the book of Ephesians? Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. It's a belt of truth. It starts with the what? Truth. Understanding the word of God. That's where it starts. The, the, the thing that, you know, holds up everything else, it holds up the pants, it cinches the rest of the armor together. It, it's this piece that many times we overlook, it's the belt of truth. It's the truth of God. If that foundation isn't there, what happens to the rest? The pants fall down. Everything's loose. It can easily fall apart, right? It's that belt of truth. And there, there's so much truth to this in every single uh, piece. By the way, every single piece of this is always forward-facing. It's offensive. You know, even though a lot of times we, we think of these pieces being defensive, they're always meant to be a forward-rushing or forward-marching piece of, of armor. The breastplate protects the front. The helmet of salvation protects the head. The feet are meant to go forward. The shield of faith is always meant to be pushed forward, never as a retreating implement. It's always meant to go forward against the enemy. And then, of course, the sword of the spear, which is the word of God. Again, ending with the word of God, the truth of God. That, that belt of truth cinched around the waist and the sword of the Spirit, which is also the Word of God, the truth of God. What is it meant for? Offensive. But then it ends it there in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, uh, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication wow does it take time is it something that we invest in or is it something we just gloss over is prayer important yes it is and by the way those last four words of that verse for all the same who are we praying for for all the same for the people of God, for those that we, we see here in this church, for those that we see throughout the week in this church, for those that we know in our workplace that are also Christians that, that may be going through hard times or family members or people that we know that we're praying for them. 
this is why Daniel, he sees this vision. And by the way, we'll pick up the rest of this uh, next, excuse me, next week, read the rest of chapter 10 and go also into uh, chapter 11 as well. Is there a spiritual warfare that's going on behind the scenes that we don't see? Is the power of prayer able to overcome even the principalities and princes and those that are in heavenly places that are fighting to bring the word of God to you? And does God hear you from the very beginning? Yes, he does. By the way, that phrase, greatly beloved, is so important to understand. Does God see you as greatly beloved as well? So if you would like the handout, they're, they're in the back. Make sure you pick up one on the, the way out. We'll pray, and then you can be dismissed. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. Your word is so powerful. Your word never returns void. And even Daniel, as he's writing these things down, as he's trying to understand them himself, asking God for understanding in, in, in not only what you're going to accomplish, but, but when you're going to accomplish it as well. The, the same is true for us today. And we, we see it, we see the, the, uh, the, you know, the birth pangs or, or the fruit of, of the coming of you very, very quickly being able to see, uh, your mark on this world, the, the birth pangs that you described in not only when you were here on this planet, but also uh, throughout the scriptures, the understanding that you're coming back very, very soon. And so, Lord, we're grateful for that. That's a comfort to us. Help it never to be anything else, but help it to be a comfort to us knowing that you will return soon. And then to understand that the prayers that we pray, the those battles in, in whether it's in our, our closets or, or beside our beds or amongst our, our family and friends for our church, Lord, I, I ask that you would just help us to understand that the, the power that we have only comes from you. It truly does. And that you hear us from the very beginning and these, this warfare in the heavenly places where, where you're sending your angels to bring us the answers to bring us the, the, the comfort that we need, the understanding uh, that we need, Lord, teach us to wait upon you. That we would grow closer to you in the waiting time. That we would see you work miracles even in the waiting time. That the answers to prayer that we know are coming are in your perfect, determined time for your glory and for your praises, Lord. And so, Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my family, as we, we read these, you know, difficult chapters in the book of Daniel, Lord, help us to see that you do fulfill prophecy even today, and that you're always accurate in your prophecies, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.